Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for listening to The Next Track today. This is episode number 70. If you've been listening to The Next Track for a while and you haven't yet popped over to the podcast section of, uh, of the iTunes store and given us a review or a rating, really appreciate if you get some time to do that. We'd love that. Kirk, why don't you tell these nice people what we're going to be talking about today? Doug and I were recently talking about movies about music, and we decided that we were going to do not one, not two, but three episodes about movies about music. This week's episode is part one, and this is going to be about fiction. Part two will be about documentaries, because there are some great music documentaries. And then part three, concert films, because... You know, what's better than a concert film when you can't see a concert? Well, uh, I'll take the live album most of the time, but we'll, <laughs> we'll save that discussion for when we do uh, <laughs> our show on documentaries. So we're not going to be exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination regarding movies about music. And, and we define this as movies where music is an integral part of the story, where it's a plot point, where it's about musicians or people making music. And you'll see the movies we talk about, how they fit. And and I think we need to start with what is my favorite music movie and what I know you just rewatched this weekend and it's pretty high in your favorite list and that's Almost Famous. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not a super big fan of Almost Famous, but uh, I really love the uh, the characters in it. I love that uh, – I like the portrayal of Lester Banks by uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And, you know, as a, as a person who – as a person who when I was growing up um, and was reading rock and roll magazines, Lester Banks was the guy, uh, along with people like Robert Crisco and, and you know, other, other Rolling Stone writers. Um, so from that perspective, I, I really kind of enjoy the movie. I, other than the fact that it's about music, I don't think I would care too much about it. I don't care about the relationships in it so much, but I like the characters in it. it it's a strange movie because it, it is about music critics. In, in a way, it's a sort of inside baseball movie because it's based on Cameron Crowe's life when he was a budding journalist. And the character, William Miller, the teenager who's wanting to become a, a music critic is Cameron Crowe. And he had a lot of these experiences where he was traveling around with bands and writing about them and going to these concerts and staying in these hotels and all that. What what I find most interesting about this movie, I've seen it a half a dozen times. And by the way, you've got to watch the director's cut. What do they call it? The bootleg cut is what they call the director's cut. It's about 20 minutes longer. What I find about interesting is that this is the movie that best captures the concept of music fans in the 1970s. Now, this is our decade of going to concerts and all that. And I really feel that the atmosphere in the movie just catches that perfectly. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, backstage stuff that seems very realistic to me. I've been in backstage situations. When I was doing radio, you know, you'd always end up at, a, at, at the Civic Center or at a bar or a place like that, and you'd end up backstage. And it, after a while, you get pretty tired of it. It's not as exciting and glamorous as, as it's made out to be. And it's very much like it is in this portrayed in this movie. Just people walking around, doing their jobs, you know, grabbing road food, stuff like that. Uh, it's very laid back. It's not very glamorous at all. And that's one of the things I do like about it in that they didn't make a big deal out of, out of all the accoutrements of being a, a, a rock person. Uh, it was, it was just these situations that they were allowed to be in. Like you said, it's, the, the the music is the excuse for for having these relationships set up the way they are. It's it's almost like we were talking earlier. It's almost like you could have made this movie about a baseball team and a sports writer. 
Um, it's really about it's it's about the writer and it's about the relationship with his mother and it's about the relationship with the girl and it's about his relationship with the band and that could easily be done with a baseball team for example and it's also a road movie in the classic road movie style where they're going from one city to the next and they're encountering new problems and new issues at each city you know it's paced like that as you go from where he first meets the band in his hometown and then they go he joins them on tour and they go to this one city and another and then the lead character wanders off with William Miller and goes to this local party of high school kids and does acid it it has all of the the classic road movie elements to it but i i think that it it's a really touching movie because of the coming of age story of this character and the one scene that always stands out for me the most is when it's about two-thirds of the way through the movie. It's just after Billy Crudup's character jumped in a swimming pool from the roof of a house, and they got back on the bus. And Elton John's Tiny Dancer is playing, which is a really fitting song. And William Miller says to Penny Lane, the groupie who's sitting next to him on the bus, he says, I have to go home. And she says, you are home. And that's really fitting because it, it shows that for a lot of these musicians and even the fans who followed them around, there was a sense of community and a sense of home. Yeah, well, and but one of the things that the, the reverse of that is that it was a bit too homey for some of them because it was their second home. They had second lives uh, on the road. Uh, Billy Crudup's character is is actually married and he's continuing to have this affair with the groupies, and as are many of them are. So it's almost like this fake life that they're they're involved in. You know, there's so much going on in this movie. I wouldn't be surprised that another 20 minutes would really help it out because um, they really had to. In order to, for, for us to feel the, the pressure from his mother, his mother has to be this incra crazy, insane, vaxxer-type uh, mother, very uh, uh, domineering and, and, and very set in, in her ideas about, about youth culture and things like that. And it's really over the top. Frances McDormand is great. She is. As she normally is. But the character is totally unbelievable because she's just so over the top. But you need that because he needs to feel the pressure while he's on the road. He has to go home. His mother is pressuring him to come home. Well, he's got the pressure from his mother, and he's got the pressure from Rolling Stone because he's essentially a fraud. They call him up. Ben Fong Torres from Rolling Stone calls him up on the phone because, I don't know, he'd sent in some things he wrote in the, his high school newspaper or something like that. And he answers the phone, and he's like, is this William Miller? And he's like, yes, this is Ben Fong Torres. Oh, oh, yes, this is William Miller. And he's trying to act like he's a real critic. So he's got the pressure from his mother, but he's got the pressure to perform for – the, the company that's paying him and he's got the pressure to fit in with the band and, and the groupies and the fans and all that. So it really is a, a complex movie. Now, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. There's a scene that didn't make it in the movie and you can see it on YouTube and you've got to watch it, but you have to do something very special to watch this. If you're familiar with the movie, there's this scene where they're trying to convince William Miller's mother to let him go on this trip. And in the movie, it's very, very short. It's just about a minute or two and a couple of questions. But there's a scene that they weren't able to use because they weren't able to license a song. They wanted to have this seven-minute scene with Stairway to Heaven going on. And they put the record on and they're doing sort of air drums and singing along. And, and it's there's no dialogue during the song. It's just going back and forth among the different people. And after hearing the song... She finally realizes, no, 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 yes, but you have to call me every day or something like that. So in the bootleg edition on DVD, there's even an instruction that you need to queue up Stairway for Heaven while you're watching the, the, the scene because there's no sound to totally appreciate it. 
And I think it's a shame they couldn't license the song. It really would have fit in well. So the lesson here is, if you're making a movie that has music in it, get your mechanical signed before you begin filming. So we're just going to randomly talk about some of the films in our list. One that I think you just watched again is 24-Hour Party People. I watch that one fairly regularly. It's one of my favorite movies, and not just because it's about a great subject of, of my of favorite subject of mine, and that's the music of Manchester and, and Tony Wilson and New Order and, and, and all of that stuff. Um, it's just a fun movie. Uh, Steve Coogan plays Tony Wilson, and he's just great in it. It was directed by Michael Winterbottom, who has done other things with Coogan, and uh, they, they always come out just great. And one of the great things about this is that in the early part of the movie where they're talking about the, the roots of punk and the roots of, of music in Manchester, there's a very famous uh, performance that the Sex Pistols made in Manchester that influenced a lot of people who later went on to form bands. Um, it was in June 1976 at the Manchester Free Trade Hall. Right. And it said that almost everyone who attended that concert went on to form a band. Exactly. And it's a fun scene because Tony Wilson breaks the fourth wall and is telling us about you know how that happened and what went on, and they actually used some footage that was what was filmed at that actual concert. It's not very good, but the funny thing is, is that I remember seeing that footage on American television on some news magazine. They actually ran a full Tony Wilson episode, and that was the first time I had ever seen the Sex Pistols, seen how how punk rock was being covered in England in the United States, and I remember it was funny because I was at my friend's house. And his father is a biology teacher in high school, and he's sitting there scowling, looking at this, and we're going, look at this stuff that's happening over there. And it was almost like someone had smuggled out this film into the United States so that we could see it. So to see it, it was a Samistat Sex Pistols film. Exactly. <laughs> so to see it, to, to see it glamorized in, in, in 24-Hour Party People was good. But there are so many great moments in 24-Hour Party People. I, I really enjoyed it. Although most, I think most people involved in real life in, in, in what went on during them, most of them would say, well, it really wasn't like that. I don't know. It might have been like that. I mean, it covers a lot of the factory bands, Joy Division, New Order, Certain Ratio, Derudy Column, Happy Mondays. It shows, from what I've heard, it, it's pretty reliable. Now, it, it's interesting. My partner lived in Manchester for a very long time. Her daughter went to school with Tony Wilson's son. So they were in the same part of the town. But she wasn't into music. My partner wasn't into music. So she never went to any of this. And I've got another friend from Manchester who didn't like Tony Wilson and didn't care about this music and missed it all. Whereas me in New York, I was going to the, the record stores on Bleecker Street to get the imports of the latest factory record singles. It's terrible when you think about it. The last time I was in Manchester, we actually stayed in a, we went to go to the, uh, the theater and we stayed in a hotel right across from the Hacienda, which is now an apartment building. And the, a friend of mine in Manchester took me around the corner to Tony Wilson's apartment. And it's got th this blue plaque, which is what they have in the UK to mark historical sites saying that this is Tony Wilson's apartment. And he obviously died a few years ago, unfortunately. In the same vein, we have a movie which I'm pretty divided about. It's Control by Anton Corbine, which is about Joy Division, particularly about Ian Curtis. One thing that I remember about Manchester before I'd ever been there is the earliest footage I had ever seen made it look like the South Bronx in the 70s. It was rubble. It was just disastrous. And you see that a lot in Control, which is shot in black and white, high contrast, very stark. And you get this feeling that it's maybe 1948, just after the war, whereas it's really the mid to late 1970s. I like Control because it's a very stark movie and it's very realistic. I think Sam Riley is excellent as Ian Curtis, but 
This was a real problem for me when I saw the film that was made of On the Road, where Sam Riley plays Jack Kerouac's character. And I couldn't not see him as Ian Curtis in that movie. I, I don't think it's a great movie, but I think it gives a nice glimpse of a microcosm of that same Manchester period. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen it. And the reason I haven't seen it is because I, I, I'm kind of not interested in Ian Curtis. I, I mean... I know he had a troubled life towards the end there, and you know he had trouble with epilepsy and he had marital difficulties, and he seemed to be somewhat of a social outcast as well. Well, all the members of the band seemed to be kind of social outcast in some degree or another. But it just didn't seem like I wanted. I don't want to know any more about Ian Curtis than I already know. I think I might be disappointed. And from what I understand, it's it's somewhat of like you say, it's stark. Uh, you might even say it's depressing. So I I kind of avoided it. But I I think for historical purposes. Uh, I should probably watch it at some point. You should. So one of the movies that I mention from time to time on this show describes a period of my life, a couple of years. It's high fidelity. I used to hang out in a record store. I'd come home after work and there'd be a couple of friends hanging out in this little record store in Queens, New York. And this was the same period when we were listening to all this Manchester music and the early cure, um, rough trade, you know, all the British labels were the, the big things. And at the same time, we had Talking Heads and Devo and all that sort of New York music. So High Fidelity is a love story. It's not about music. Music is the context. But it does bring in that atmosphere of people who hung out in record stores. Well, I didn't hang out in record stores, but that same sort of camaraderie was around uh, at radio stations I worked at. Jocks would constantly be arguing about what music is better. We'd make lists. Oh, we never did that. No better, best arguments or... Two guys in a death cage match who would win. No, we didn't do the list thing, but we did the hanging out um, saying, oh, you've got to check out this record. And someone comes in looking for a record and one of the people would be like, no, 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 don't buy that. Check this out instead. But it was the best way to discover new music and not have to pay for it because the guy who ran the record store was a friend. And we would all say, well, put this on and put that on and we'd get to listen to all this music. And we'd buy a lot of it too, but we'd be able to listen to it and, and sample it. Now, I haven't seen High Fidelity in a while, but doesn't he also make a top five list of his his favorite girlfriends? Isn't that what the... I think it's a top five list of his breakups. His br top five breakups. That's yeah, I didn't rewatch it for this show. Yeah, he tries to figure out where he went wrong. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was kind of a weird thing to do. I mean... It's certainly something that I'm sure lonely guys do. <laughs> you know, like, what went wrong? It also fits in with the whole top five list in the record store thing. So there is a logic to it. But I think it's a great movie. I think the novel is very good, too. The novel's a lot more interesting than the movie is. Still Crazy is a movie that might be obscure. A lot of people haven't heard of. It's about this rock band that's been apart for a while and they get this chance to get back together and do some touring and they're a sort of a mid-level rock band they're not very big and it's got Stephen Ray and it's got Bill Nye and and it's just fun but Doug you didn't like this did you well it's a it's a perfectly enjoyable and entertaining movie but it came out it was it was one of a spate of British films to come out around that time that um well I don't want to be critical of them this is just an observation but there's this very British type of film that have this template. These, these are the movies I'm thinking about. The Commitments, The Full Monty, Saving Grace, um, even some of the Simon Pegg movies like Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, and Still Crazy. They seem to follow this loose formula. The protagonist is a ne'er-do-well outsider who has a problem that needs to be solved. And the way the protagonist wants to solve the problem is, while they think it's noble, 
it's against the grain of the community standards. So the movie is essentially about how to get everybody on board to solve the problem. Now, these are always ensemble casts so that they can have a, a, a good bunch of subplots involving romance and mystery and generational friction and two guys don't get along and then they always get along at the end, you know, you know these typical tropes. And, but anyway, the main problem is eventually solved by convincing the community that what you thought about our protagonist and his cohort is wrong. The protagonist and his friends are not outsiders. They're actually good for the community. Movie ends with everybody singing a song or dancing or something like that. It's a big happy ending finish. Yeah. Now, the one thing I do remember about Still Crazy is that they did spend a lot of time goofing on what you might call rock memes. Bill Nye living in this big manor house and all, and but he's all natural and vegetarian and everything. Right, and it, I think there's some, there's, some in, there's some running gag about him working on an album, and he's yeah. actually not working on it, and well, I think, you know, things like that. And, and then there's this other character in the band who's like in a an asylum or something sort of a Sid Barrett type character. So right. so it does it does reference a lot. But how is this different from Hollywood movies that there's always, you know, there, there's always this conflict that needs to be resolved for everyone to have the happy ending. Yes, but it always seems in these particular movies, I don't want to argue about this particular style, but it seems like all of the movies that I mentioned have this formula. Uh, and it makes it somewhat predictable for me. But other, other than that, I, I do like the goofing on the memes and, and the things like that. But to, to prove my point, the guy who's in the insane asylum shows up at the end and plays a great guitar solo. It's like, well, how the heck did that happen? The guy is confined in, a, in an insane asylum, and so, but he comes back and he's happy too, and it makes everybody happy. So it's the sort of it's if you look at it as as a string of it's vignettes, a feel good movie about a rock. It's a band. feel good movie. They're all yeah. feel good. All of the movies I mentioned are all, and they all end feel good. Well, not all the movies we're talking about are feel good. I don't no. think Control was or Twenty Four Hour Party People. No. Well, that's what I mean. If this, if that movie, if Still Crazy was more like Twenty Four Hour Party People or Control, well, it would be a different movie. It wouldn't be a comedy. It wouldn't be Still Crazy. Right. Right. <laughs> So I watched a movie over the weekend that I had never seen, and there's a lot of movies that I've never seen that everyone has seen. It's Amadeus. We can't only talk about rock movies here because there are movies about classical music and jazz. I saw a revival of the play in London on Monday, and it's a really fascinating play. And I watched the director's cut of the movie because apparently Milos Forman said when it came out on DVD, well, the movie was two hours, 40 minutes, and we've got another 20 minutes, so why not put it on? What a slog it was going through this movie. It was just way too long, and, and it got interesting in the last 45 minutes. I don't want to spoil anything, so I won't say what happens, but it got interesting at the end when it became a more intimate film and there were fewer people, fewer characters involved. Is that when he's composing the Requiem at the end? Is yes. That part? Yeah, yeah. Okay. With, with Salieri's help. Yeah. And, and that gets more interesting. You know, it's a relationship between uh, Mozart and Salieri, but I thought it was a slog. I just, it was too long. It is long, but I, I really enjoy the movie. I love the character that uh, that Tom Hulse creates. I don't know what the stage um, Mozart is supposed to be like, but the movie Mozart is, is he's, he's quite lovable. Yeah, I didn't find that. He annoyed me. Oh, really? Yeah, and the one in the in the stage performance I saw was even crazier. Like, almost as if he had Tourette spouting out things spontaneously and all that. And, and I'm, I don't know how much historical... Um, verisimilitude there is toward Mozart being like that, but it does make for a good play and a good movie. But it's long. It's really long. Th there aren't that many movies about classical music that tell stories. Um, there, there are movies like um, The Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach by 
two German cineasts in the 70s, which is incredibly boring. I think there's an eight-hour movie about Wagner that someone made. But classical music tends not to be very popular. However, there was a very good movie called A Late Quartet, which starred Christopher Walken, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Catherine Keener. The four members of a string quartet obviously are very close, and Christopher Walken's character tells them that he has to retire, that he's started developing Parkinson's. And you get all of this history of the quartet, the 20 or 25 years they'd been together, and how this is sort of a divorce in a certain way, and they have to bring in a new cellist to replace him. And some of the musical elements are interesting because Philip Seymour Hoffman's character wants to play without scores. The Emerson String Quartet famously plays without scores much of the time. And he wanted to do this, but the others didn't. And he was second violin, and he wanted to be first violin sometimes, which is the Emerson String Quartet also does. So there was a lot of interaction going on around the sort of, the, the sort of crisis that comes in as Parkinson and makes them rethink everything. K kudos to a minor character who I've come to really like, Imogen Poots, who's also in that Cameron Crowe series, Roadies. She's the daughter of two of the musicians, and she is very, very good in, as a minor character in this. But as classical music goes, there aren't enough movies, I think, because this isn't your audience that goes to the movie theater anymore. Well, exactly. I think we're all familiar with, with rock uh, musicians. I mean, they're in the popular culture, but I don't think anybody would really understand, you know, what it means to perform without the score in front of you. It's, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's the sort of detail that I think would go over most people's heads. Um, but so that probably explains that. But, you know, now that I think about it, I, I can't even think of a decent movie about rock music that's come out recently, uh, a, a decent one. I know there have been some. There was a Meryl Streep movie recently. Well, the, but. the closest I can think isn't entirely rock, but it's Inside Lewin Davis. Yeah, sure, to a degree. Yeah. Um, it's not really rock. It's about Dave Van Ronk, and, and I'll put a link in the show notes. We, we had Elijah Wald on the show some months ago talking about his book about Robert Johnson, and he also finished writing Dave Van Ronk's memoirs, which is what this movie was taken from. I, I've actually seen this movie twice, even though I don't like it, and I, I still don't like it after the second time. I find it's a bit fragmented, and this bit with the cat just doesn't make sense. The, the character's staying at someone's apartment and the cat gets out and he has to catch the cat and try and find him. And it, I guess that's a metaphor for like some sort of a quest for eternal youth or something. Musically, the movie was interesting, but I just think plot-wise it wasn't that good. Yeah, but it's still, I, I, I enjoy watching. I've seen it two or three times and I like, it's by the Coen brothers. And uh, I'm a Coen brothers nut, so I'll, I'll watch their stuff whether people think it's good or bad because there's always something in there. But yeah, I, it's not one of their best, but... Uh, I, I find it in, I find it an, an enjoyable movie, even though nothing seems to get resolved, and it's just a week in his life. It's a slice of life movie. Yeah, and and you know the ending is interesting, where you know Bob Dylan gets introduced at the club that he normally plays at, and you kind of see what happens to Lou and Davis after that. He must disappear, I'm sure. Uh, so I mean, it's an interesting movie from that point of view. It's not depressing, but on the other hand, it's not a very joyful movie either. Yeah. So jazz has been a very popular topic for movies. And, and in researching this show, I looked back at all of the movies that were made in the 30s and the 40s, like the Glenn Miller story and the Tommy Dorsey story. These were, were big deals which allowed a, a band to be able to play a lot of music for people who were going for the music less than, less than they were going for the story. But a couple of movies stood out, and, and I haven't unfortunately been able to see all of them. Bird, which is a Clint Eastwood movie um, with... Forrest Whitaker? 
playing Charlie Parker. Round Midnight, which is the movie by Bertrand Tavernier, which stars Dexter Gordon and it has Herbie Hancock and, and a number of other people. Spike Lee's movie, Mo Better Blues, with Denzel Washington, who's playing a fictional trumpeter. And then this recent movie called Miles Ahead by Don Cheadle, where Don Cheadle was starring and directing. And, and I didn't want to watch this movie because the, the trailer I saw just looked wrong. And I said, okay, it was on Netflix or Amazon, and I was going to watch it this weekend, and man, was I disappointed. What, what Cheadle does is he takes this period in the late 70s when Miles was in a slump and he wasn't recording any music, and there's this master tape from a studio, and someone steals it, and he's got to get it back. Ewan McGregor is a journalist who's pretending to be from Rolling Stone but who isn't and wants to get a story, and the two of them end up in these sort of car chases with gunfights and stuff, and I'm, I can't tell you how stupid this movie was. It's it's interspersed with these memories of Miles back in the late 50s and the early 60s, and it just doesn't work. It's just so wrong. And you take a musician that good, and you make a movie that bad, and it's a shame. And when I read about the movie, he had tried to get this produced for years and couldn't get the funding and ended up using crowdfunding to make the movie, and that's why the people in Hollywood wouldn't pay for it. <laughs> It was disappointing. One of my favorite movies that I actually haven't seen, this made me think of it, I haven't seen it in a long time, is Lady Sings the Blues, which is uh, the Billie Holiday movie with uh, Diana Ross. And I've seen that twice or three times, but not very recently. And I recall that was quite good. That was also episodic and vignette-like, uh, you know, portraying different crises in her life. Uh, but I thought I thought it was really good. And the music was really good, too. Um, the album, as I recall, sold very well. Well, that's one thing about these movies is that even if the movie's not good, you've got a good soundtrack. Back to Almost Famous, the, the soundtrack was organized by Ann Wilson of Heart, who's married to Cameron Crowe. High Fidelity's got a great soundtrack. Obviously, 24-hour party people, all this music from the Manchester scene. The Miles movie has good soundtrack. You know, some of his stuff from the 70s and some of the stuff that, that's earlier than this. So at a minimum, you get the soundtrack in one of these movies. Whether it's a fictional character or not, there's still always music that's going to give you the atmosphere. I think we should end with one that I think you particularly like, The Beatles, It's a Hard Day's Night. Yeah, Hard Day's Night is one of my favorite um, music-oriented movies, and it's not great, and it's not just because it's it's The Beatles. It's actually a very enjoyable film. Um, it's the sort of thing that I really wanted to watch a lot, and it wasn't available for a long time. You'd have to wait for it to come around to show in, like, smaller art theaters, and when it came out on video, I immediately bought it thinking this is going to be the last time I'll ever have a chance. Well, now you can get it anywhere. But it's it's a movie that we watched a lot when my daughter was little because she got a kick out of it. So I've seen it dozens of times. And I don't ever get tired of it. Um, there's a slight lull where they lose Ringo. You know, he goes out wander. He feels unwanted and goes wandering around. That's the only lull in the movie. The rest of it I really enjoy a lot. Um Everybody in it is great. The Beatles are great in it. The commentary uh, on on the on pop and social uh, things going on at the time is very amusing. Uh, George Harrison up in the marketing uh, office uh, trying to figure out how to market to, to young teenagers is still very funny. Um, so I, it's it's one of it's one of my favorite movies of this type. And the funny thing about A Hard Day's Night is it's not about the Beatles. It's about a band called the Beatles, played by the Beatles, but it's certainly nothing like what they really went through. I mean, it's all exaggerated. 
um, and except for the performance in the in the in the TV studio and things like that, uh, I think most of the uh, most of the uh, the adventures that happen uh, just are just f- totally fictional. It is a pretty revolutionary style of movie, however, for for the time. Yeah, well, it was shot in black and white, and it uses a, a cinema verite sort of style to look documentary-ish, single camera. Um, but also, think of the influence that A Hard Day's Night had on future uh, movies and videos, particularly like Head by the Monkees, and then, you know, promotional films before MTV. Uh, a lot of bands emulated the uh, the look that Help and A Hard Day's Night had. All right. I think we should wrap now because we've been talking for about two hours and you're going to have to edit a lot out of this. No, we haven't. Stay, stay tuned for two forthcoming episodes, one about documentaries and one about concert films. And please write in on the show page with comments about your favorite movies, either fiction that we might not have mentioned or documentaries and concert movies. So we'll have a nice list to, to look into for our future episodes. Now we will present to you our next tracks, Kirk. So my next track this week is something I just chanced upon this weekend. It is called Bears Sonic Journals Never the Same Way Once. It is a recording of Doc and Merle Watson performing live in May 1974. Now, Bear is Owsley Stanley, who was well known for being the Grateful Dead sound man and also the largest manufacturer of LSD in California. He was the main contributor to the Summer of Love, or at least for the ambience of the Summer of Love. But Bear was an audio perfectionist. He, he's the one who made the Grateful Dead's Wall of Sound in the early 1970s, and he was extremely finicky about his recordings, about mic placement, about levels and getting everything just right. And I'm going to put a link to this on Apple Music because you can't buy the CDs from Amazon. You have to buy them from the Owsley Stanley Foundation. The Apple Music version is the equivalent of two CDs, but this has been released as a seven-disc box set. There are a total of 32 songs. It's 90 minutes long, and it's just Doc and Merle Watson, Doc Watson, the well-known flat picker, and Merle Watson, his son, who I think died in 1985, very young, and they're just playing old bluegrass and blues and some instrumentals and country songs, and it has a presence that you don't hear very often in these old live recordings. If you're a deadhead, you certainly know the old and in the way recordings, which was the Jerry Garcia acoustic band. Bear recorded these, so you've got the same kind of sound here. It's very present. It's very alive. It's really a warm sound. It's beautifully recorded. It really is beautifully restored. This is the first release of, apparently there are 1,300 tapes that Bear recorded and that this foundation is trying to get as many of them as possible released, and they include some of the biggest names of the period. So I'll also put a link in the show notes to the foundation's page if you want to buy the 7-CD box set and support them. Doug, what are you listening to? I'll be listening to David Johansson's live album from 1982 called Live It Up. Now, I haven't listened to this record in years, so please don't tell me that it stinks now. As everybody should know, David Johansson was the lead singer for the New York Dolls, and after they broke up, he cultivated a solo career as a more traditional rock front guy. Uh, His first three solo albums didn't exactly set the world on fire, probably because... The people who knew him from the Dolls were wondering where the outrageousness was, and your basic Ario Speedwagon, Bad Company, Kansas fan was wondering if there was anything to see here. 
So at this point, in, in order to remake his image, he decides to tour relentlessly, to rebuild his image, to get away from the dolls and establish himself as a, a rock icon. And so by the time this live album comes out, he and the band were pretty tight. The big song from this album is the Animals Medley. We got to get out of this place. Don't bring me down. Uh, it's my life, which was all over the radio and MTV. But he also does some Dolls stuff and some of his early hits like Frenchette and Funky But Chic. And like I said, a few of the New York Dolls numbers. But as reasonably popular as this album was, Johansson still wasn't getting the respect that he thought he deserved. So a couple of years later, he invented Buster Poindexter, a schmaltzy lounge singer who already had fame built in. And the rest, as they say, is hot, hot, hot. David Johansson, Live It Up, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.